Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and the reading will also be on the screen behind me. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. You're going to be seated. <clears throat> My name is Michael, and I'm uh, on staff here at the church, and I get the privilege of uh, teaching God's word this morning, which is, which is awesome. I'm going to just apologize in advance for the weather, which is <clears throat> doing some stuff here. I'm just yeah, going to apologize in, in advance for that. Um, before we uh, dig into the text this morning, uh, it seemed fitting in light of yesterday being Veterans Day uh, that we take a moment and, and honor those who have served our country um, by, by, by serving in, in the armed forces. So if that's you, if you're um, a veteran, would you mind standing and can we just honor you for a, a moment? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you can be seated. Yeah, we just want to thank you for, for your willingness to uh, serve something higher than yourself, right? And that's not, uh, especially in our culture, an, an easy thing to do, right? We're told to serve yourself, and here um, some men and women who are, are, have very clearly served something higher than themselves. Um, <clears throat> you know, as I was also just thinking about uh, uh, veterans, I was looking up some uh, statistics and, uh, about veterans, and... Um, I came across some, some kind of sobering statistics about homelessness and suicide rates amongst uh, veterans. Um, in particular, the VA had a report that said that um, the suicide rate for veterans was 57% greater than for non-veterans in the U.S. I thought, man, that is terrible. And I thought, you know, the church, as followers of Christ, are called to care for the hurting and the hopeless. Here's a population that needs our care. But we just need to keep that in mind, right? Church, let's be the church, even for our, our veterans. 
this morning we get to continue our series, um, in, and that's what we've been calling the Portraits of the Kingdom, about the parables that uh, Jesus uh, taught, these little stories that unpack some pretty uh, big truths. And it's been really cool that we have been able to partner with the artists in our community. And so this morning we have uh, this, this painting um, by Nola Naff, one of our uh, students here at the Parks Church, called The Suffering Son. And I love this for a number of reasons. You might say, wait, isn't this, this is normally called the parable of the wicked tenant. And here it is about the son. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I love that. I also love that there, there's, um, there's some darkness to this. I think sometimes we confuse Christian art with the Hallmark Channel. That's not the case. Christianity also deals with things like sin and death and judgment. And um, that's another reason why I, I love this, uh, this painting, because that's dealt with in, in our text this morning. So uh, I, I appreciate Nola for, for painting this, and I might even refer back to it later. Um, so I'm going to argue at the outset here <coughs> that this parable that, again, we typically call the, the parable of the wicked tenants has everything to do with authority. Authority. So uh, let's make sure that we can define this rightly, that we can have kind of the same definition here. So I, I think we can define authority like this. True authority is the power to do something and the right to exercise that power. Right? Makes sense? The power to do something, but also the right to exercise. So, so if uh, you have the power to do something, but not the right to exercise it, you are a, a tyrant or a bully or something like that. And if you, have the right, uh, if you have the right to exercise power, but not the actual power to get stuff done, then you're the U.S. Congress. <coughs> uh, I was pretty proud of that joke, I'm not going to lie. That's a good one, right? Um, you know, nothing uh, makes our own lack of authority quite so apparent, or at least I think that uh, this is the case, uh, as becoming a parent. Right? You become a parent and you're like, I have authority, I'm a parent. <laughs> nope. Um, I've been discovering this again and again over the last uh, four years, but my authority was especially called into, a question, into question just a few weeks ago by my middle child. Um, my wife, Michaela, uh, was at the ladies' Bible study, so I was putting all three girls to bed. And our oldest, uh, she, was, she was going potty, which is not a phrase I thought I would say consistently, but it is, going potty. Um, I had already changed our, our, our baby, and uh, I needed to change Evangeline, our, our middle, middle child, who is not even two years old. And just keep that in mind, <clears throat> not even two. Um, I was calling her into our room, but she kept running away from me. And... Have you ever been at that point where you're, you're not angry, but you almost are really angry? That's kind of where I was at. I was like, I'm not there yet, still fully in control of my emotions. And so I consciously decided that I was going to use my big fatherly authoritative voice uh, to call her. This was going to you know, shake her up from what she was doing. She was going to recognize that she needed to listen and obey and come into her room. And so I said, Evangeline, you need to go over here right now. She turns, looks me dead in the face, and goes, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Wait, oh, oh, no, oh, no. That's not how that was supposed to go. It was not supposed to be that I use my kind of scary authoritative voice, and then she laughs at my face and runs away. Uh, the one who's not even two. I thought, I thought, oh, I'm in trouble for when she is a teenager. <laughs> um, 
in some ways, I'm hoping that our text this morning actually kind of functions like Evangeline's laugh. Um, Maybe a little less comical, but a message that wakes us up to the reality of our self-perceived authority, the authority we think we have. But uh, instead, uh, it directs us to the one who actually commands all authority. So I want to highlight for us three truths this morning. I'm going to go ahead and lay them out, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of explain them as we go. So I want to see these three things. The desire for autonomy, which is just the, the desire to be your own authority, runs through every human heart. Autonomy appears to achieve liberation, but actually results in judgment. And everyone must reckon with the authority of Christ. We're going to see those th- three things in the text this morning. So let's walk through this. The idea of authority is key to this parable, we know, because of its context. Back in verse 23 of of Matthew chapter 21, some of the religious leaders, uh, the chief priests and the elders, approached Jesus' teaching in the temple. And they asked him, by what authority are are you doing all these things that you're doing? And they're referring to his riding into Jerusalem with great fanfare, his cleansing the temple, uh, you know, uh, running out the money changers, uh, cursing fig trees, teaching, all this stuff. What, what's your authority for that? And Jesus, being the great question asker that he is, says he'll only answer if they first answer his question. So he asks them, the baptism of John, did it come from heaven or man? In other words, is his authority John, of John the Baptist, was that uh, from God or not? And the leaders don't want to say from heaven, because then why didn't they follow him? And I don't want to say from man, because everyone else believed he was a prophet from God. So they're, they're stuck. So they claim ignorance. We don't know. So Jesus says, fine, I won't tell you the source of my authority either. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. No, he's not going to tell them explicitly, but he will show them. So he confronts them with two parables that will serve to reveal their own hardness of heart and blindness to the ways of God, their blindness to seeing Jesus for who he actually is. So after telling them uh, one parable, he comes to this parable, our text for today. After, uh, uh, well, the setting of this parable is really interesting because it would have resonated with the leaders of, of this time because it's very similar to Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. In Isaiah, someone plants a vineyard and specially tends to it, uh, much like is done here. So they, they you know, build a fence around it and a tower to watch over it. All, all the same things that the owner of this vineyard does in, in our text today. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, we are told uh, this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we, we know that uh, the vineyard is Israel, it's God's people, and then it's his vineyard. He is the master, he's the owner, he's the one who has done all this preparation to get the vineyard uh, ready. But in Isaiah, we're told it was time for, for the grapes to be produced, and instead there were wild grapes. It did not produce, the vineyard did not produce what it had been prepared to do. And the leaders, they knew all this. They knew uh, the point that Isaiah was getting at. And that point is, uh, Isaiah is essentially asking, what can now be done for the people of God when a total work of grace has been lavished on them, right? all that preparation done for the vineyard, 
and yet they remain as if grace had never touched them. They, they knew that this was the point, but they, they saw themselves as the remnant of Israel, the, the true Israel, the Israel that had learned from their past wickedness. They, they thought that they were the righteous ones, not the unrighteous and wicked. <clears throat> but Jesus puts a twist on the Isaiah parable. After the master does all that preparatory work on the vineyard, he leases it out to some tenants. Wait a minute, that's not in Isaiah. Who, who are these guys? What, what, do we, what do we know about them? Uh, this would have caught those religious leaders off guard a little bit. Well, what do we know about these tenants? Well, we know that they don't own the property, right? Like that's what a tenant is. Uh, it's been leased out to them. They don't own it. Uh, we know they didn't do anything to get it ready for planting either, right? The master of the vineyard did all of that. And we know they owe some, if not all, of the harvest to the master, right? So they don't own the property, they didn't do anything to get it ready, and they owe some, if not all of it, to the master. That's what we know about them. But what do they do when the master sends his servants to collect what is his due? The unthinkable. Right? Notice the progression of their violence. They beat one, kill another, and stone another. And if you don't see that progression there, then you need to know that stoning, as one scholar describes it, was a death of surpassing brutality. That's how he describes it. Ancient sources report how a man was to uh, be thrown off a cliff, crushed on the chest with a large stone, and if still alive, pelted with smaller stones until dead. It's gruesome. It was reserved as an act of severe judgment against those who severely corrupted the community of faith. And here, these tenants take that right of judgment for themselves against the servants of the ones who actually had that right. They're taking his authority. Why? Why would they do that? What would motivate them to act so brutally? Well, in the, in the first instance with the servants, they, it must have been that they just wanted the, the master's produce. They wanted to keep it for themselves. But then when the son comes, when this exceedingly patient master sends his own son, they decide they could have the master's whole land. Right? They think that the inheritance of the heir could be theirs. So they take the son out back and slaughter him. So Jesus, coming out of this parable, turns to his listeners, the leaders of Israel, and asks, what's the master going to do when he returns? How's he going to deal with these tenants? Outraged by this atrocity, <clears throat> the, they, they rightly assert, he will put those riches, wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Absolutely. This is absolutely the just and right response. So what Jesus says next at first seems like a non sequitur. It seems like it doesn't really follow, right? We've been talking about these tenants and the judgment. So why are you going to quote Psalm 118, 22 through 23? Because that's, what, that's where Jesus quotes from, from Psalm 118. You can read this in uh, verse 42. Jesus said to them, <clears throat> Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, okay, we were talking about vineyards, and now we're at a stone and a building. How, did, how, did, how do we get there? Uh, you know, what does this have to do with any of that? Everything, actually. It's the whole point. Psalm 118 proclaims how the steadfast love of the Lord ultimately saves Israel from her enemies. 
and many recognized that this stone that's referenced here um, from Psalm 118.22, this stone was Israel's Messiah, the anointed king from the line of David who would achieve that victory for Israel. In some way, he would, this stone would appear defeated or, or failing. That is, he would be rejected. And the builders were thought to be the surrounding nations who sought Israel's demise because they are mentioned earlier in Psalm 118. So they are, uh, these nations are the builders who rejected the stone. But God, <clears throat> because he's God and can bring victory out of defeat, chooses what is weak and foolish in this world to shame the strong and wise. He can make a stone. He can make his Messiah that appears to be too crumbly to work into a structure. He can actually make that the foundation, the cornerstone, the the most important part of the whole foundation. This is the marvelous work of God. This is what he can do. Because of how Jesus is telling this story of introducing these tenets, he's telling these leaders, you are the builders who are rejecting the Lord's stone You are the wicked tenants who reject the master's son. The stone, the son, the coming Messiah and Savior, they're all the same. And Jesus is saying, they're all me. The people who were literally just singing about me the other day, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were singing as he entered into Jerusalem, which is also from Psalm 118, by the way. Uh, And Jesus is saying, and you're refusing to see that. You're refusing to see that my authority comes from God because I am God. Instead, you think as Israel's appointed leaders, you have the authority that you are the master. Wrong. God is the master, and I am his chosen beloved son. That's what Jesus is saying. So what's going to happen? The kingdom will be taken from them and given to another people. That's what the text says. Their judgment about the tenants was right but they were actually pronouncing judgment on themselves. Some have interpreted verse 43 to mean that the kingdom will be taken away from Israel and given to the Gentiles, and that's wrong. That's just straight up wrong. There's a long history uh, of interpretation of, of that, but it's wrong. You can see here that the kingdom is taken away from the leaders, these religious leaders. But we also know that the kingdom is taken away from anyone who rejects the stone, who rejects the Son, the rightful authority, and the kingdom is given to any who accept him as Lord. And that's not just a jump for us to make because this is exactly what Peter means when he quotes Psalms 118.22 in Acts 4.11 and 1 Peter 2.7. Peter uh, helps us to see that this message is not just for the Jewish religious leaders of the first century, but for us in the 21st century as well. When he quotes this, he, he's very clear that this is for any who believe or, or don't believe. Um, and so, <clears throat> from that, we can, uh, I want to draw attention to the main points of this passage with ourselves in mind, remembering that this is a message for us today. Jesus is not just talking to uh, the religious leaders of the first century, but to us today. And the first point is this, the desire for autonomy runs through every human heart. You know, if you, <clears throat> if you replace vineyard with garden uh, and tenants with Adam and Eve, you kind of have Genesis 3. <clears throat> they were tempted with the knowledge of good and evil so that they could be like God, so that they could determine apart from God what was a right and wrong for themselves, right? To be their own authority, essentially. And that same desire to determine for oneself what to do um, also drove at one time or another 
Abraham and Sarah. You can see it in the story uh, with Rebecca and Jacob, with Moses and David, and basically all of God's people. And, and really that desire for autonomy, for independence, to be one's own master, uh, continues throughout all of humanity. And so I have this flowchart that can maybe help us think through this a little bit. Um, you can ask yourself this, am I a human? No, that's weird. <coughs> yes, need to repent of desire to rule self. It's that simple. Are you a human? Uh, no, come talk to me afterwards. I'd like to have a conversation with you. Yes, need to repent of, of, of the desire to rule yourself. We all have that desire in us, and, and we all, all of us rely on some aspect of ourselves. That's why the flowchart kind of continues over here. We don't all exert uh, our authority the same way. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes we lean on these different aspects of ourselves. So uh, you are your own authority, maybe, by saying, I trust my reason. If I just put my mind to it, I can figure out for myself what is good and evil, true and false, beautiful or ugly. Right? This is sometimes how we make ourselves our own authority. Or you say, uh, I trust my feelings, my instincts. If I just follow my heart, I will be my authentic self, which is necessarily right and good. That belief just comes at us from our culture again and again, that actually, uh, if you just follow your feelings, uh, this is what is, what, is, what is good and right. And our feelings are good, and we do need to listen to them, but they can't be our authority. Uh, or you say, I trust my uh, choices and abilities. I have a strong will. I act. I get stuff done. Everyone else is ineffective, but if I take the reins, everything will turn out right. Or you say, uh, I trust my given position in society. Maybe I have a good, successful family, so obviously we're doing something right. I'm going to continue living by our rules because, well, look at us. These are all different ways in which we trust ourselves where we make ourselves our own authority and all of us have at some point trusted in what we thought or felt or were doing even when it was opposed to God's revealed will we believed that like the tenants when they refused the servant's request that we had the right to the master's goods and could do with them as we pleased without giving anything to him right isn't that how sometimes we handle our finances and possessions um, or we believe we have the right to judge what is right and wrong, like the tenants when they pronounce judgment and stone the servants. You say, oh, I, I know the Bible teaches that sex is best enjoyed within heterosexual monogamous marriage, but how can these feelings be wrong? Or we believe sometimes that we have the right to determine reality itself, like when the tenants thought just by killing the son they could basically become the master. How does that work? That's not reality. But they were trying to make it that reality. Uh, <clears throat> Christian uh, thinker Cornelius Plantinga Jr. argues that in our culture, we think that our minds impose on reality its very character and structure. We create by our choosing or by our thinking or by our speaking. It is not our minds that must conform to reality. Instead, reality must conform to our minds. And you could replace minds with heart or will also. I think that one needs a little unpacking there. Um, so here's how this could kind of work. Um, I might think that someone wronged me, <clears throat> and therefore they did wrong me. I don't need to see the facts, because my thoughts are the facts. 
Or I might feel that it is right to express my sexuality a certain way. Or I might feel that it is right to spend my money a certain way. Therefore, it is right. I'm the authority. I determine truth, goodness, reality. Uh, I only conform to myself. Um, C.S. Lewis does a great job of kind of breaking this down in his uh, short book, The Abolition of Man. I would highly recommend it, but I don't have time more to talk about it, but it's great. <coughs> uh, Plantinga continues uh, in, in his book here when he's talking about this, and he says to this, uh, of how culture operates, no. He says, God created the heavens and the earth, including us. What follows is that there really is a way things are. Right? God really is the authority. And he says this is so even if God is the only being in the universe who knows this state of affairs exactly. God actually has revealed to us through his scriptures the way things are supposed to be. So he hasn't even left himself without a witness. But even if he did, he's, he created the heavens and the earth, not us. So he has that right to say what is reality, what is true, what is good, not us. Isaiah describes our desire for autonomy and independence well uh, in Isaiah 29, 16. He says, <clears throat> you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Right? This is what we do. This is what we do when we make ourselves our own authority, our own master. We turn things upside down. I think that, that verse perfectly captures that, that idea. But when we think of autonomy or independence, we almost never think of those as bad things. Right? We've been trained to believe the, the actually very subtle lie uh, that they are exactly the same things as liberation or freedom. Now, it certainly is true in a relative sense. Right? Independence means freedom when you've been oppressed by a tyrant, for example. Right? When you come out from under the tyrant and are independent of the tyrant, yes, that is freedom, that is liberation. If a baby becomes independent of her mother, however, does she experience freedom and flourishing or starvation and death? So the second point we must call our attention to is autonomy, the desire for uh, authority yourself, appears to achieve liberation, but actually results in judgment. Remember the tenants. What did they think would happen if they asserted themselves over the sun? Right? Fruit, the land, they thought all of that would be theirs. And in the same way, the religious leaders thought if, that if they were calling the shots, Israel would flourish and the Roman Empire would be thrown off, but that's not how it worked for them and it's not how it works for us. Do we really think that we can have the master's goods without the master himself? We might find success for a time. I mean, if you read the Psalms, you know that the psalmists are always saying, like, why are the wicked flourishing? That does happen for a time. But most of us do experience a kind of uh, temporal judgment, a kind of right now judgment. And all who remain in this falsehood will experience eternal judgment. What do I mean by temporal judgment first. Um, I mean, things don't necessarily go well now. You kind of experience a kind of judgment now. Um, so first, being your own authority is only fun until your truth collides with somebody else's truth. With no overarching, transcendent authority, we're like planes flying through the sky without all the flight plans checked over to make sure no one crashes into each other, which, as I understand, has actually been kind of a problem a few times this year. 
Uh, yeah, you read that story in the news and you're like, whoa, that's not good. But this is why our, 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 culture, uh, our, our culture war is what it is. Rather than discussing a master flight plan, we're just trying to down as many planes as we can. Second, being your own authority is only fun um, until you realize you're powerless or incompetent or confused, which inevitably will happen. So what happens after that? You go looking for some other charismatic authority to attach yourself to, right? This could be a political leader, but I mean, probably not because who would do that? <coughs> uh, could be a religious leader. Could be a business colleague, an influencer, a, a, a friend at school, right? It's someone or anyone uh, who you think can bring about the reality or truth you desire. We attach ourselves to them, and now, actually, you're in bondage to them. You are a Grima Wormtongue, a Peter Pettigrew, or a Grover Dill, and if you don't get any of those references, which is fine because I mostly wrote that in for myself, um, they're just characters who are lackeys. They attach themselves to those who seem powerful, but in most cases, uh, they are destroyed. Uh, actually attaching to them, uh, to themselves to the person who appears powerful is their own undoing. But more distressing than the temporal judgment is the eternal judgment. We do a disservice to one another when we shy away from hard truths. And the hard truth is that if you seat yourself on the throne of your heart, if you are your own king or queen, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is explicit. If you are king, he isn't, and you will be judged. Notice that in verse 44, Jesus describes an encounter with the stone, which is himself. That sounds a lot like the judgment of being stoned. Right? Verse 40, 44 says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you choose independence from the source of life, if you crave autonomy over the author of life, you're choosing death. You can't have the master's goods without the master. It is impossible. So we come to our final point. Everyone must reckon with the authority of Christ. You cannot attain enough knowledge to enter the kingdom of God you cannot feel enough compassion or mercy to achieve sainthood. Uh, you can't do enough good works to earn God's favor. You can't rely on the good standing of your family. You either submit to Jesus or you don't. Those are the options. The Gospels and the rest of the New Testament are clear that Christ has all authority. He has the authority to cast out demons uh, in Luke 4.36, the authority to heal uh, Matthew 8.13, to teach. Matthew 7.26, to calm storms. Matthew 8.26, uh, he actually has the authority to grant authority to others. That's Matthew 10.1. Uh, he has the authority to judge. John 5.27, the authority to cast into hell. Luke 12.5, also the authority to forgive. Matthew 9.6-8, the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. John 10.18, and the authority to grant eternal life to the elect, John 17, 2. And at the end of his life, before he's taken into heaven, Jesus himself says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? His actions show 
that he has authority. His words show that he has authority, and he claims for himself that he has all authority. Paul, I think, also captures this idea well in Philippians 2. Um, he says this, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have to reckon with Christ. This is who he says he is and who the, script, and who the scriptures say that he is. <clears throat> Although... Um, what I'm about to read, uh, this argument didn't originate with C.S. Lewis. He captures it, I think, perfectly uh, in mere Christianity when he argues this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God or his claim to have all authority. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, right? The father of lies. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. He's either a lunatic or a liar, or he's Lord. That is the point of our text this morning. He is either your cornerstone, your foundation, your rock of refuge. Or he's your stone of stumbling, your rock of offense. He is your crushing judgment. You either submit to his authority or you assert your own or someone else's. Those are the options, and they're the only two options. And it's not only non-Christians who have to reckon with these choices, who have to reckon with Christ. There will be plenty of folks here who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but who do not truly believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, that he is the Lord of all of their life. They're holding on to still something in their lives that they want to have control over, that they want to have authority over. And so you confess Jesus is Lord, but you believe that the final authority in your household is you, and so you domineer your spouse. You confess Jesus is Lord, but you believe that the outcome of your kids is ultimately up to your good parenting, and so you anxiously dictate every step that your children take. You confess Jesus is Lord, but you believe security is found in your bank account, and so you work tirelessly and, and hoard everything you make. You confess Jesus is Lord, but you do not submit your, relations, your relationships to him, and so you either avoid conflicts at all costs, or you confront everyone and everything recklessly, believing that you have the power and the authority to fix everything. You confess Jesus is Lord, but your work, <clears throat> that's under your authority, and so you develop business goals and strategies that are more concerned with the bottom line than the kingdom of God confess Jesus as Lord, but you believe as long as it doesn't harm anyone else, you can express your sexuality as you choose, and so you end up sexually objectifying yourself and becoming entrapped in sexual bondage. You confess Jesus as Lord, but you believe others must think highly of you, or they must think that you're cool or successful or talented, and so you struggle to craft, to craft the perfect self-image to project out into the world. 
confess Jesus as Lord, but you believe health and life comes from diets and supplements and workout regimens. And so you pour countless hours and mental energy and money striving after preserving the perfect body and or judgmentally scorning those who don't make the same lifestyle choices as you. You confess Jesus as Lord, but you don't trust your spiritual formation into his hands. So you beat yourself up when you neglect to read your Bible or pray or when you fail to demonstrate the character of Christ. Is Jesus your Lord or not? Will you submit to his authority in every area of life or not? Those are the options. But here's the good news. He's a gracious king. He's not a tyrant. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this all-important question. It asks, what is your only hope in life or death? Or some uh, versions say, what is your only comfort in life and death? This is how it answers it. That I am not my own. Just how countercultural is that statement by itself? That your only hope, your only comfort, the only thing that can actually help you make it through this life is that you're not your own. That's the complete opposite of uh, own your truth or you do you. And you're not your own, but you belong. But your authority is somebody else. You belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is actually what is your only hope, your only comfort in this world. But this is not where the answer stops. It goes on to tell us why that's true. Can we read the rest of that? This is why it is true that we belong to him because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's why he's your only hope. That's why he is your only authority worthy of your submission. What other authority gives himself so completely to you? What judge takes your judgment himself? Jesus, the stone that you rejected, chooses out of his great love to be your cornerstone anyways. The son you condemned to death actually lays down his life and receives your condemnation for you. The judgment of the master falls on him. You demanded his inheritance, but he says, come to me, be with me, know me, and I'll give it to you. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give yourself fully and completely to Jesus, and you'll find that he gives himself to you. You'll find that you have a firm foundation to uphold you when you are struggling with sin or when suffering is coming upon you. This, this is not in my notes, but I thought of it earlier, and so I'm going to read it. It's from Hebrews 2, and it, it just captures this perfectly. Hebrews 2, 10, it says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's the suffering son. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. That's the authority that we get to submit to. Isn't that great? He's not a tyrant. He's a king who says, I will come and actually suffer for you. You think that you're killing me, but I'm actually just laying, I have the authority to lay my life down myself. And I'm doing it for you. So we have an opportunity today, an opportunity to reckon with Christ. We have the opportunity to examine the ways that we've set ourselves up as our own Lord or that we've attached ourselves to other lesser lords. And we have the opportunity to submit to the true and good king in all areas of our life. And we find that when we do, we have a firm foundation. It doesn't mean life is always great, that it's, it's just, a, yeah, that, that, that we get to go and everything is just hunky-dory. <laughs> but he's there with us. He's gone through the suffering already. And he knows how to lead the way out for us. So when we attach ourselves to him, when we make him our authority, we find a rock of refuge. Hosts, you can go ahead and get ready for, um, for communion. And it's, it's really fitting that we would now come to the tables of communion. <laughs> because this is a really tangible reminder of the kind of Lord that we serve, the kind of authority that we get to submit all our lives to. He's the kind of authority who would have his body broken for you, who would have his blood spilled out to forgive you of your sins and bring you into life with God. So as you come down and you're gonna come down and, and grab the, the juice and the bread and, and come back to your seats and if you would just hold on to those uh, until we all take those together. As you do that, I want you to think through these questions. Just a few questions to reflect and then maybe a short prayer to, to, to say or to get your prayer um, started. These are questions that basically are just getting you to think, how, how have I set myself up to be my own authority? What are the areas that I actually haven't given to him? And so in repentance, let us come and give those things to him. And But as you're coming again, remember, this is who you get to serve, the suffering son who would suffer for you, who would be rejected for you so that you would be accepted um, in, in, with, with God. So let's pray and then you can come. Father, you are so good. You are so loving, you are so gracious. We are the wicked tenants of this story. We have rejected you. We've set our, our own selves up as the authority in our life. And we've rebelled against you. But Father, you are so patient, you are so long suffering that you sent your son 
sent your son to come and, and be, become sin for us, to take the punishment that we deserved. And so would you help us to submit our whole life to you and recognize that you are our king? In Jesus' name, amen. Come, come now and, and receive the communion.